0: Welcome to Screen Therapy. I'm your host, Jason Schurz. In October of 2018, I found myself in the hospital, sitting across from a psychiatrist who was telling me I had bipolar. I was sent home with a bunch of medication and laid on the couch for a week. I had my iTunes library on shuffle, trying to shake the hornet's nest from my head. Ever since I was a kid, I've been using loud music as a form of therapy. Punk rock and mental health have always been connected. This podcast looks at that connection through the lens of different guests This is Screen Therapy. We've all heard tales of the early days of punk rock and the new york and london punk scenes that spawned a worldwide phenomenon of freaks and weirdos who liked it loud hard and fast but few of us actually went to cbgb's or the marquee club during those times as a youth and young adult jennifer palladino was a member of both of the quintessential punk scenes of the late 70s she saw most of the legendary bands several times over and like many punks, she found her friends and confidants at shows and after-parties. Jennifer is now a chiropractic doctor who practices sound therapy on musicians and other artists. She hosts the Rockin' Healthy Lifestyles podcast, where she talks to musicians about their tragedies and triumphs. Jennifer often reflects on how mental health was addressed during the 70s when she was seeing The Ramones or Generation X or Patti Smith. Although the punks in those scenes banded together and were always there for each other, Mental health issues were mostly unspoken and misunderstood, and alcohol and drug misuse was rampant. Jennifer had the privilege of being there during Punk's inception. She also has the benefit of living through it, and being able to help a new generation.
1: I'm Dr. Jennifer Palladino. I'm a Doctor of Chiropractic. I'm in private practice in Los Angeles. I've been a chiropractor for 33 years, and I specialize in treating injuries of musicians and instrumental musicians and performing artists. And I grew up in New York back in the 70s, so my introduction to punk was really right where it was happening. I was 16 in 1976, 40 plus years ago. It was really a great scene. I, I'm from Long Island and the whole punk scene that took place was in Manhattan. And we would jump on the train and go into the city and party all night. Maxis, Kansas City was actually my favorite club, CBGB's of course. Certainly the Ritz, which was a great place to see bands and see people like Patti Smith. I can't even tell you how many times I've seen Patti Smith, Richard Hell and the Voidoids and Robert Gordon, and certainly the Ramones, you know, people were making fun of the Ramones back in those days when their first album came out. It's like, oh, those guys only play three chords. But (laughs) that was so core New York and something that I really related to, like to me, that's my music. Blondie was a band, not Debbie Harry. Talking heads and people like Johnny Thunders, who was in the New York Dolls, but then he broke away and did his own thing. I was a big Dead Boys fan, love that (laughs) band. But it was a great scene.
0: A lot of punks hold reverence on the New York punk scene in the 70s. Obviously, that was one of the places it originated along with the UK. And Not a lot of people have the experience of being there and you were there. And it sounds like it was pretty special. And it sounds like it was the impetus of something that blew up all over the world. When you were part of that scene in those years, were you feeling it was special? Were you feeling there's certain twinge in the air that, hey, this is gonna be something that could be worldwide?
1: Well, I think with anything, you don't really think that when you're living it, you're just there, it's a great scene. It was a dangerous scene. Punk wasn't such an isolated genre yet. You know, it was just forming. It, things were coming over from across the pond, bands and styles. And it was a time where it was new and you don't really think of that type of, wow, this is it, this is the greatest, this is going to be historic. It's like classic rock. It wasn't classic rock. It was just the scene that was available to us. It was definitely a dangerous scene. I mean, so many people I knew, (laughs) I mean, they're not alive. I'm here to tell it, but it's a shame. But it was drugs and violence. It was very raw.
0: The way punk is portrayed, not only in movies and books, but also from a lot of stories I've heard from people who are actually in the scene, so real life, is that a lot of these young adults came in from broken homes, from the suburbs, from places where they were being abused, from unfortunate situations, in a lot of cases, scary situations, and found this scene and these people that were their people. And yes, it was a debaucherous and nihilistic scene, but it also was a safe haven for a lot of these folks. Did you experience that amongst your friend circle?
1: I was standing on the edge, keeping a safe distance, but part of it, A lot of city kids, a lot of kids from the boroughs, Queens, the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Manhattan, and other people who had gravitated to New York from other states and who were keen on this scene. I would say there was a lot of sadness. There was a lot of family issues. And not saying I didn't have any of my own, which possibly made me gravitate toward that new punk thing, because it was definitely a way, a different way of being able to express yourself. It just felt good. It just keep in mind, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. So I have a great family, parents who loved me and sister who loved me, and we're educated people. But my father, he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. And (laughs) it's very difficult to see your loved one so tormented especially as a young child an impressionable kid and then you're going through adolescence with all these hormonals i think adolescence is a dirty joke (laughs) if we could survive that means something but that's what i think originally drew me that and because i had access having access to a scene is helpful But I did recognize there was a lot of people who were drug addicted, poverty stricken, and who were just depressed and suffered from, we didn't have these, we didn't have bipolar was not something that was commonly diagnosed. ADHD, Asperger's, autism, these were words that I never heard in those days. Hyperactive, that person's hyperactive. And with a lot of mental health issues, it was a shameful thing to have in the family or experience and you were quieted with these issues and so many people were suffering it was no different than now but now at least we can talk about it you could not talk about it it was embarrassing it, you know you would shame your family or so i think a lot of kids saw that there were other people who were feeling this, other kids who were feeling this, and the music just punctuated it.
0: Punctuated it.
1: <laughs> That's why there was so much of a gravitation toward
0: these clubs, toward these bands. And the punk scene being more open, maybe, the dress and the style, the style of music, talking about these issues in the music. I wasn't there, and, but I know what it's like now. I know that when I go to a show now, I feel like I belong, and I don't feel like such a weirdo and a freak, even though, yeah, I'll take those terms and turn them around and use them for empowerment. Back then, it seems like it was a lot more chaotic.
1: There were little areas of camaraderie, so we would come out of CBGBs, and the Hells Angels would be there, but they would watch over us. They would protect us, you know, scantily clad, wild dress. The Bowery is a dangerous place, and you come out at two, three o'clock in the morning just to go to an after hours club after that. And so in that respect, but I I don't, I didn't really feel that way. I think there was more of that camaraderie that I felt in London than I felt in New York. New York was, there was a lot of stylistic things happening. You know, people were really kind of coining the dress. It was all so new. All these things were Like, what's the newest thing, or what is somebody doing that we can do and have a takeoff of as far as our dress goes or music? I'll give you an example. So, I love the Dead Boys, and Stiv Baders was lead singer. And just for people who don't know, he really lived the part. He really did. He was a nice person because I was lucky to get to know him, but he really lived the part. In fact, a lot of those guys did. And so. Stiv passed away. He was hit by a bus or something in Paris. But that night on stage, we were, of course, up front, and he took a box of crickets, and he poured it all over the audience. It was just something that was, who did that? No one did that. <laughs> no one did that. I got my to do that. Ain't no user. So it was these groundbreaking things that would happen. It was fun, you know, we'd we'd have chickpea fights at Max's Kansas City, because they had chickpeas on the table, so the whole place would get into a chickpea fight. But the camaraderie, it was, you know, you saw a lot of people die, a lot of heroin. Mind you, disco was happening uptown on the west side. Studio 54 at that point was really blazing. So you had a lot of this diversity of music, but then the opportunity I got to go to London, the scene there, and that was in uh, 78, 79 and 80, I lived over there.
0: Yeah, you got the best of both worlds.
1: Yeah, and what happened was I met my boyfriend at the time and he was, (laughs) believe it or not, he was a responsible punk. He had a job working for Brit Rail which is the railroad over in England. And, and he also worked at the Marquee Club. Now the Marquee Club was around for years, even before the punk scene, but it was really a pinnacle place of punk and a lot of where punk developed. Also too, you know, Electric Ballroom, the 100 Club, those places. You'd see The Clash, and I saw so many bands there. Chelsea and Slaughter and the Dogs, The Slits, Generation X, that's Billy Idol's band. What a great, great band. That was wonderful. The members, the song Stand Up and Spit, because spitting was such a huge thing. Like English thought that Americans love to be spit at. So when I went (laughs) to see the Ramones down in Brighton, down in uh, Top Rank Club, I mean, there were guys on the side of the stage with towels just to wipe the spit off the stage so Dee Dee and Joey wouldn't slip so it was that kind of thing Gang of Four Stiff Little Fingers they were from Ireland but they were big the Damned of course and
0: Buzzcocks
1: yeah Buzzcocks yeah. great stuff I my I I'm falling UK subs. And then, of course, there was the mod scene, which they were very opposed to each other, the mods and the punks. I got my ass kicked once for wearing a, a leather jacket on mod night at the marquee club. So, you know, you learn your lesson, you understand where you stand. But these kids, more so than the New York kids, New York kids were troubled, but they were a bit spoiled. I came over to London Someone said to me, you know, hey, what do you think about what's going on in Iran? What are you talking about? It was the Iran hostage crisis in November of 79. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Because as an American, I don't care. I just turn the TV on, get my hamburger and Coke. And I don't, I don't, it doesn't matter to me. But they were so hyper-focused on what was going on politically because there was, working class and upper class and there was no middle class and that's what I was so kind of spoiled but those kids they were they were sad they were really going nowhere a lot of them and again heroin another big problem
0: back then i keep saying back then i was born in 72 so i was quite young in 79 mental health wasn't a topic of conversation that it was buried or hidden under especially amongst families and I'm wondering what it was like within the punk scene. Was it talked about? Was it an unspoken thing? I mean, it was obviously a lot more accepted, people that were having struggles. A lot of them did turn to drugs, like you mentioned, but was it a topic of conversation within the scene or was it more just an organic, we're all screwed up, we're gonna band together in that?
1: Yeah, that was it. And you kind of celebrated it within yourself and your friends. That was really it. There was a lot of very young kids in London those clubs closed at 11. They weren't allowed to drink. They'd come in and there was no bracelets that you had to wear. The bartender knew you and he wouldn't serve you your log or whatever it is, you know, and you would have somebody else buy it for you. And there was no, you have to be 21 here. We smoked cigarettes. We drank 15, 16 in bars. Nobody proofed you or carded you. I think that's another term. No one did that. You looked 18 here. That was a lot of, I think, the problem too, because drinking, it's a cheap high. It was cheaper than cocaine or doing some, you know, exotic drug or even smoking pot. It was easily accessible. And you would bum a cigarette off somebody and someone would give it to you because it didn't cost $18 a pack. It was 50 cents a pack. This is how long ago that was. And so I think a lot of the Drug access, the alcohol access. There was no worrying, how am I going to get high?
0: You have a history with music, punk rock, and other forms of music, and you've stayed connected to music through your life. In fact, you have a foundation which talks to musicians and looks at how music has affected their life and, in some cases, saved their life, which is a big thread of my book that I wrote, obviously, a thread of this podcast. So I'm wondering how you pivoted from being a fan through your upbringing and through your adulthood and now into working with musicians and looking at their health.
1: Well, I think what happened is like anything, you know, we turn to our music, whatever our music is, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's opera, it doesn't matter, classical or whatever the genre, you know, your music saves you. I'm sure everybody listening can attest to that, but just it never leaves you so I went through different stages of rockabilly and ska and all those different genres and blues and certainly classical music, yes. But throughout school, so I moved to Los Angeles when I was 24 for graduate school, chiropractic. And I certainly was hyper-focused on my studies. And once I emerged and had a married life and I have a son who's 26, but I found that... You know music still lives inside of you and i was helping people with their neuromusculoskeletal issues but i noticed you can't separate body mind and spirit it's a package and so patients would tell me all sorts of things you know about their mental health about their problems their families and so forth and so i realized that to treat a patient and to get any kind of change with their ailment, let's just say, you have to address all aspects. So I'm a roll up your sleeves kind of doc. I really get in there and treat patients on a physical level, but I ended up, and this is maybe within the last six, seven years, I ended up finding the handpan which is an unusual instrument, then I wanted to learn how to play. It has a great sound and I really learned better coordination between my right and left side. So it was a perfect instrument for me. From learning that handpan, I found that a lot of handpan was used in something called sound baths. And a sound bath, if you can imagine, lying down, comfortably with pillows and blankets and being surrounded by bells, chimes, didgeridoos, sitars.
0: Nipalm death. <laughs> That's what I do.
1: <laughs> Bat and bowls yep. and gongs and instruments that create frequencies and tones and, and sounds that get us from that hyper state, that brain state down into where you would go to meditate. And by doing that, I've worked with patients who, for example, can't seem to get rid of migraines, but they clench their teeth and they have a lot of stress. Now, if I do a one-on-one sound healing for them, I can get them to a place where that stress is relieved people come to me for anxiety, depression. And so you're addressing the emotional, addressing the physical, and now you're starting to create moving parts that are more functioning and together. So I'm an advocate too of medication. I think that you use these things as a tool. So that's a good thing. And when I treat a patient, as long as I'm aware of that, we work together with all these issues but I've treated a lot of musicians who suffer from stage fright, a lot of classical ballet dancers with injuries who can't get past certain blocks. So it's there. It's there for us. Doesn't matter that you're a punk. If you deviate into this other world, we're so lucky now. I think about it and the kids now, they can talk to each other. They can turn to people and talk and find resources and understand what their diagnosis is. It's something that we didn't have when I was a kid. You know, you just had to like shut up and suffer with it.
0: Tell me about the foundation, I'm curious to know.
1: Well, the U Rock Foundation was started by its founder, Joe Panola. And it's a music-based nonprofit that helps people who suffer from anxiety, suicide ideation, depression, mental health issues. And how we help is we have popular musicians talk about how music has saved their life. So guys from Corn, uh, Slipknot, a lot of heavy metal bands, but really in essence, it's the same thing. We're open to talking to anybody, which is why I have my podcast.
0: And your podcast really looks at? What makes musicians tick and creative inspiration, but also at the same time how that feeds into being healthy mentally, physically.
1: Yeah. Popular musicians, actors, performing artists. I try in and address everybody and just to see that creative spark and where it takes us, where it takes a an artist.
0: Thinking back to what you said about Generation X a while ago and This is going to sound totally bizarre and weird, but I have to tell you this. So the sound bathing, laying down, putting on sound and letting it envelop you and bring you to that zone, that meditative zone. So I did that. I have a noise project with a friend. And so we'll record the sessions and then listen to them later. And I always like to do that. Just crank it up, lay there, eyes closed. And (laughs) this one time I kind of got into this state and all of a sudden I saw Billy Idol's face like come at at me in the, (laughs) I don't know why. I kind of woke, jogged out of it and like, whoa, that's weird. And uh, I always think about him now and Generation X whenever I hear them. I'm like, why did Billy Idol's face come at me like that? <laughs> I don't know.
1: I don't know, but maybe yeah. it's a message. But that first yeah. album, that Gen X, first, actually the first and second albums, I would suggest for people to check those albums out. Fabulous yeah. stuff. Yeah.
0: When you think back on your time in the punk scene, when you were uh, coming up and a young adult, and especially in those really formative years, of punk rock, New York and London. What kind of memories or feelings do you have when you think back on that?
1: Well, I definitely feel privileged. I really feel privileged out here in, in LA. I go to Hollywood Forever Cemetery because Johnny Ramone and Dee Dee Ramone are buried there. And you know what? I sit at their gravesite and I'm like, I sing the songs to them. I'm thinking, I'm so privileged to be able to be in that scene. and when other people talk about it or there's an article about it, like I so understand because I can see in my mind's eye the stage. (laughs) I can go to the bathroom in those filthy places and I can see that place, you know? So I do feel privileged. I feel sad for the loss. I was very in the scene when Sid Vicious and Nancy, they died. And so I was really feeling it at the time. So I guess I'm privileged in that I was able to be part of that, but at the same time, my heart is sad for it all.
0: And some joy there as well.
1: Oh yeah, in the music, in yeah. the music. Always turn to music for your peace, whatever that piece is, because it's there for you. It's the best tool that we've been as human beings granted. So we need to use it.
0: That was my conversation with jennifer palladino rockinhealthylifestyles.com for more episodes of screen therapy go to screentherapyhq.com or wherever you listen to podcasts big news the screen therapy book is available for pre-order screen therapy a punk journey through mental health tells my story and the stories of others who use punk as a catalyst for mental health like this podcast it links the community-minded punk scene with the mental wellness of the punks who belong to it. To pre-order the book, go to ScreenTherapyHQ.com. For merch, check out the newly opened store at ScreenTherapyHQ.com store. And for even more designs, check out ScreenTherapy on TeePublic. Okay, enough promoting. It's time for some thanking. Thank you for listening to Screen Therapy. Doing this podcast and talking to folks about punk rock and mental health has been a crucial part of my own mental stability, and it means so much to me that you're out there listening. Screen Therapy is created in the Cathet region of coastal British Columbia, Canada, on the traditional territory of the Oklahoma Nation. Contact me at screentherapyhq.com or email me at screentherapypodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Let's talk about punk rock and mental health. Until next time, take care and be well.